doing embodiment practices, taking a moment to touch yourself. Because every time you touch your skin, it creates this chemical reaction process that will lead to more dopamine production. It's hard when you don't feel like being sexy, you don't feel sensual, you don't feel in your body, feel disconnected. But if you can consciously take a moment, even if it's just one moment to start connecting with yourself and from that sensual level, you will start that process of moving towards pleasure versus continuously moving towards pain. I'm Alexa, and you're listening to That Sex Check, a Soulfire production. Okay, so my loves, you know that anxiety is something that I have been challenged by for, if I really look back, I think my whole life. And it's something that I've spoken about on the show before. I've communicated with y'all about ways that I've interacted with anxiety, that I have tried to lessen anxiety in my life, things that I've cut out of my life so that I could manage it and this whole thing. So it's still an ongoing process, especially where I am now recording this particular show with this particular guest. I have come through so many things very recently, lots of big life transitions, just recently moved. Many of you know about our fertility journey and how we went through miscarriage very recently. And so a lot of the tools and a lot of the things that I had to manage distraction, overwhelm, anxiety, all of that in the midst of grief and busyness. And at this point, even a holiday, it's almost like they just kind of go out of the window. And I don't know if you who are listening can relate that when it's just too much stuff, all of the tools and the things that I have learned just go out of the window and I feel lost in it again. And occasionally I'm like, how have I spent so much time and so much effort and energy and presence with feeling good within myself and about myself to every so often just feel like I'm in a fucking tumble dryer with all of my emotions and sensations and overwhelm and nervous system dysregulation and distraction, disconnection from partner, from self, from so much. And there are times where I have to kind of coax myself down, not necessarily off the ledge, but kind of bring myself back into myself and just say, it's okay. And this is temporary. And even though I've done so much work, I'm not necessarily taking steps backwards. Like life is happening and I am still regardless. And the moments where I feel kind of hopeless, I'm still very deeply committed to the process and continuing to learn and continuing to grow my education and continuing to be able to show up for myself in an even better way and show up for my husband and my relationship, my future family that I know is very close and to show up better for all of you who have chosen to follow me for some strange reason and be a part of my journey and allow me to see glimpses of your journeys and and where you are at. And I'm so grateful for all of that. And so anyway, all this context to share that today's conversation is going to be a bit about the topic of anxiety and how this plays a role in 
sex and intimacy and connection, navigating the world. I've also had a number of people message and ask, when will I do a podcast episode or have a conversation with someone about what it's like to have ADHD or ADD and be in partnership and interact in sex, especially when nervous systems gets really dysregulated. There's a lot of distraction and so on and so forth. And so even the conversation of what about neurodiversity? How does this play a role? People who would consider themselves or identify as, or have been diagnosed with neurodiversity. So whatever the language that you use is and how does that show up? And so we're going to talk about as much as we can in the next 35, 45 minutes plus, y'all know we get sometimes a bit on a roll here, but we're going to cover as much as we can about what it means to show up with various mental, emotional challenges and what it's like to be in partnership with self and with others. And so to have this conversation, I'm really excited to have Wendy Perkins come on to the show. Thank you so much for hanging out while I did the intro for the show. And now, of course, you have a little even bit more context about me and where we're going. So thank you for coming and sharing your magic and your message with all of our listeners and with me. Oh, thanks. I'm excited to be here. First off, sex is obviously one of my favorite topics. And as someone with ADHD, this is definitely one of my favorite subjects is understanding how they all come together. Yeah. <laughs> Pun yeah. intended. Right. <laughs> Man, I don't know. Coming while anxious or coming while very distracted doesn't usually go hand in hand, but we'll talk about ways that we can work with it and essentially not against it. So I would love to get us going with, and the way that I have this question phrased, even on my little sheet right here, it seems, I don't want to say like clickbaity in a way, like how can someone be addicted to their anxiety? You know, like that just sounds like kind of a cheesy way to phrase it. However, it hits when I read it through a couple of times, especially as someone who has, like I was just sharing, has been up and down, very up and down with feelings of really intense anxiety and feeling like I have essentially kind of blown out my nervous system at times. So when I see that word like addicted in there, I know that we're being kind of playful with the word, but in some ways, at least that's the way I interpret it. So I'll just pose the question to you as it is and stop rambling about it and see what your thoughts and feels are. So how can people essentially maybe be addicted to anxiety? So you're not off base actually at all. When you start really understanding what is happening in the brain with anxiety, people actually are addicted to their anxiety. That is actually the physical process that is happening. So it's not clickbaity. It's the truth. It's all kind of stems around a neurotransmitter called dopamine, which if you have anxiety or ADHD, you probably are aware of it. Although particularly with ADHD, but not everyone with anxiety really understands the role that dopamine plays in their anxiety. Although it gets the terms like feel-good neurotransmitter or reward system, those are kind of misnomers because there's really nothing that has to do with feeling good with dopamine. And the reward system is not specifically rewards. It actually has to do with uncertainty. And sometimes that uncertainty comes with a good thing or a bad thing. And so what dopamine does is basically it's a repeat molecule. So Anytime you do any kind of activity that increases your dopamine levels, then your body will repeat that action. And anxiety, depression, some of the mental diagnoses that people get are on the pain side versus the pleasure side of what happens with uncertainty, right? So remember uncertainty, there could be good or bad. 
it's the same chemical process, whether you experience something pleasurable or something quote unquote painful. And I do mean anxiety and depression in that it doesn't have to be physical pain. It can be emotional, mental pain. And so there's a dopamine production in those particular activities, right? The whole process of creating the dopamine when you're in either pain or pleasure creates that addiction. And so you literally are getting addicted to that anxiety, especially if your life isn't full with a bunch of pleasurable activities, your brain will be more predisposed to quote unquote painful activities to keep repeating. Mm. Does that make sense, what I said? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, it does, of course. Even using the word addicted or, yeah, I have some challenges with it because I've had people in my life that have been, you know, people that Jordan, my husband, and I were close with or that he was close with growing up. I mean, he's from mid small town, Midwest and Ohio. And we see people struggling with heroin addiction. And when I look at them and I see the way that they are navigating something that's got a hold on them like that, there's this thing that comes up in me where I'm like, oh, that's addiction. That over there is addiction. And so it's hard. It's hard for me to relate or to, mm, I don't know if it's relate. It's more like take on that word and that intensity because it registers as something that is so unique in and of itself and has its own you know, kind of situation. But I think that that comes from like my own personal experience with it. But in a lot of ways, what you do describe that definitely rings true, you know, and there are times when I feel flooded like nervous system flooded and I'm spiraling kind of with anxiety and I'm just like, how am I here again? Like, I don't like this. I'm telling myself and I'm saying it out loud. I don't like this. How do I keep going here? And so there has to be something that is just really pulling me in that direction in a sense. But yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are. It's a complicated and simple process, right? Like simply it's that you had behavior that created dopamine during the behavior. So there's three parts to why we repeat behavior. You need adrenaline, dopamine, and acetylcholine. So adrenaline is to take action. Dopamine is what is created and kind of creates the pattern to repeat the behavior. And acetylcholine is tied with emotions. So anytime you have something that is emotional, whether good or bad, right, is irrelevant. It's just if there's heightened acetyl paired with dopamine, you're going to repeat that behavior. And so there's no behavior. The brain is not judging whether that behavior is good or bad. Mm -hmm. It is encapsulating high acetylcholine, high dopamine, repeat that behavior. And that's why addiction is hard because It is not about you knowing this is a bad thing or you knowing this is a good thing. It is irrelevant. It's literally the brain wired to create that behavior over and over again. Mm, Okay. Understand. And, you know, some people get really addicted to some good things too. I'm sure you have met people who are addicted to exercise, Mm. right? You know, or addicted to eating healthy, addicted to a gazillion things that are quote unquote good for you, but it becomes this repetitive behavior because it's so emotionally charged for them that it creates this behavior, this addiction. And that's what addiction is. Addiction is just repeated behavior. Mm. Okay. Definitely makes sense. How does all of this, and you know, I have a friend, her name is Angie Lee and she calls her people on, and I'm not sure if you know who she is, but she's on Instagram, influencer kind of chick. And she always comes online and she's like, hi, squirrel friends. Cause she's just like, I'm just like kind of squirrely and I'm all over the place. And she talks a lot about ADHD. And so she's one of my closest friends that I 
let's say speaks up and speaks out about how ADHD plays a role in her life. And we jam out on the angst kind of side of mm-hmm. things, but the hyper distraction, like getting it, like the other things that she speaks about that happen for her, are not things that I would say I'm in bed with. And so mm-hmm. she has even asked me at times about ADHD and sex and intimacy and that kind of thing. And I haven't really been able to share anything outside of presencing techniques like, oh, this is how you get in your body and that kind of stuff. So I'm That's curious it. for you, how you would describe how ADHD and people who are challenged by that, maybe you even go into what that is ADHD or ADD and the differences and then how that winds up playing a role for people, how they figure out that they even have it. And then eventually what it's like to be in relationship. All right. So ADHD, there's two parts to what it is. And actually it's related to that dopamine. So remember dopamine is that repeating behavior. There are four pathways for dopamine. One has to do with movement One has to do with your pituitary gland and creating your hormones. One has to do with the like overall balance and like sleep synchronization of your body. And then one has to do go towards your prefrontal cortex, which is your executive functioning. Whenever you have lower levels of dopamine for whatever reason, then one of those pathways is not going to get as much dopamine traveling down there. And on a hierarchical level of body functions, you have to send dopamine down towards the pituitary one for the hormones. You have to send dopamine down towards the movement and you have to send dopamine down towards the general homeostasis of the body. So the one that kind of gets like shunned or like the last resort is the one that goes to the prefrontal cortex, which is the executive functioning, which is what most people who have ADHD have the problems with and is actually part of the definition of getting an ADHD diagnosis. Now, everyone will experience ADHD symptoms because there are times when every single person is going to have lower levels of dopamine and they will have less ability to have that dopamine heading down towards that prefrontal cortex. The difference between someone with ADHD and someone without ADHD is someone with ADHD consistently has that issue. For example, one of the things that blew my mind is that sometimes people actually just wake up and remember to like go brush their teeth and wash their face. That is not something that actually like I have to have notes out to remind myself to do that because it will not happen for me if I don't have an actual trigger to make me remember to do that because my brain does not process in that same way. That's just a simple example. It shows up very differently, right? Because the prefrontal cortex handles all of our cognitive, all of our executive functioning. Anytime we're using like skills and logic, that's when the dopamine shows up there. So things like focus and motivation are highly impacted by that particular dopamine pathway. And that is where the issues with ADHD occur is with that pathway. Now, people with ADHD also end up usually having other comorbidities, meaning other issues that go along with the ADHD and it has to do with the low dopamine. For example, there's a high chance of ending up with Parkinson's when you have ADHD and that has to do with that movement pathway for the dopamine. Because as I said, there's a hierarchy of how the dopamine flows. And so movement takes less priority over the pituitary. So the pituitary gets the first 
if there's only a little bit of dopamine, it's going to go to the pituitary first, and then it's going to go to the different pathways after that. And then that was the ADHD. And I know you had another question, but I forgot what it was. (laughs) Well, I has kind of a lot of them in there. So great, but I've been tracking. So what is it like? I kind of go back and forth. I grew up with one of my cousins in particular getting the diagnosis very early when he was a little kid and to see how that has translated into him becoming an adult. I mean, I wonder all the different ways that that could have been handled, his care and acceptance and love. And not that he wasn't cared for, accepted or loved for who he was. It was just this really problem child. How do we handle and manage this really problem child? And now I would consider him to be just a really misunderstood young adult in a lot of ways and very quiet and very awkward. And so I have no idea with regards to the medications and the different pharmaceuticals that can be prescribed, you know, what that translates, how that factors into management and long-term effects. Yeah. So I want to go point out something first about ADHD. There's four different kinds of ADHD, and it has to do with those different pathways. And ADHD is also tied to norepinephrine. So if there is an overabundance of norepinephrine, you're going to end up with hyperactivity. There's an issue with the norepinephrine where you're actually not making enough paired with the lower dopamine. You're going to be completely spacey and daydreaming and zoned out and complete inability to focus. So it shows up differently. So there are four different kinds of ADHD. There's hyperactivity, inattentive, and now I just forgot the other two. There's a combination where you flip back and forth between the hyperactivity, inattentive. And one of the things in particular for females is that the hyperactivity often actually occurs in the brain. So it's this incessant thinking As I mentioned, everyone is going to have ADHD symptoms because these are parts of the body, the way they function, right? So we all experience pretty much everything that everyone experiences is just to the levels of which people experience things. Everyone's going to be depressed sometimes. Everyone's going to be anxious sometimes. It's a matter of whether or not that depression shows up day after day after day, causing there to be issues in your life versus the occasional sadness that you're able to move through or the anxiety that you know shows up day after day versus the kind of anxiety that moves through right. or the inability to focus and stay motivated that shows up sometimes or it stays there day after right. day. And so one of the things that I see repeatedly with my clients and also myself is that when you have ADHD, you're not able to perform in the ways that other people perform. And our society is very much based on what you contribute to society and how you show up and how productive you are. And as a mom of a special needs son, our best guess will probably never be a quote unquote productive member of society. It's really changed my perception of being a contributing member of society versus being a productive member of society. And I work with him to, and people around us to shift that perception of productivity versus contributing because he brings so much joy and laughter into our life, even though he will probably never make a dime in his life, you know, because you may not ever have those skills. I don't know. We'll figure out. But when it comes to ADHD, more or less normal, quote unquote, normal, (laughs) but having these ADHD symptoms, you look like there's no issue. 
you appear like there's no issue. And most people who have ADHD that I found are extremely smart. So ADHD has nothing to do with intelligence. Intelligence is a completely separate issue. So you could get straight A's and be super, super intelligent, but have the inability to remember to do your homework simultaneously because it just out of sight, out of mind, because with ADHD, we don't have that same ability to repeat that behavior. And we don't have that same like emotional attachment sometimes, even though we have this really sadness when we don't complete things. But when it comes to the motivating part of it, we're just missing the chemistry that creates that motivation to do it. So I can only imagine it literally goes out of our head. Yeah, I can I yeah. can now to loop us back around. I can only imagine what that is like for someone who has ADHD and wants love and wants partnership and romantic, you know, in the romantic realms, the feelings of being misunderstood, especially if they're partnered with someone who has no experience in a sense with what they're going through has their own variations. But to them, they're like, oh, but there's a limit to this. But to the person, like you're saying, there is no limit. I'm not forgetting to get you a birthday present. I'm not forgetting. Like, it's just not there. <laughs> and I love you. Yeah. And please don't hold this against me. So I can, I can imagine. And I would love to hear some perspective on what it's like from the side of being the person who has ADHD and being in a romantic partnership with someone and wanting to create life, family, let's say, in partnership. And then the flip side, what's it like to be partnered with the person who is like that. Yeah. I'm not married, but I have experience with being in relationship with people with and without Mm -hmm. ADHD and obviously with ADHD. (laughs) I know Mm -hmm. what it's like to be that person. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a lot of misunderstanding. I like using the example for people who everyone has experienced sadness and anxiety at some point where it was out of their control. Like they could no longer get a grip of it because this does happen to everybody at some point in time. And when people just say, oh, just snap out of it, right? Like, oh, just stop being sad. Oh, just stop being anxious. Yeah. If it was that easy, we would just remember, just pay attention, just focus, set your calendar, like all of the tools, you know, that are available. I don't know a single person with ADHD who hasn't tried hundreds, if not thousands of different techniques to quote unquote, be organized and stay productive and stop procrastinating and all of those things. It's a chemical thing. The whole out of sight, out of mind is the easiest way to explain it. When it's not right there in front of your face, you literally do not remember it. There is not the pathway connecting the prefrontal cortex for you to remember it. It is gone right at that point. And so with couples and relationships, the person who does not have ADHD just wants you know, them to snap out of it, just like depression or anxiety. And it does take some understanding on their part and some education from the person with ADHD, because it's going to show up differently for different people. For example, some of my clients struggle a lot with keeping their home clean. It's an impossible thing for them. They just can't remember to do things. Whereas some of my ADHD clients have spotless homes, right? But they struggle with different stuff. So everyone's going to have their different issues, which they struggle with. And a lot of that has to do with emotional importance that was instilled when they were children. So everything that we do is basically learned behavior (laughs) at some point in time. And so depending on what that importance was as a child creates that importance. And sometimes it's the things that we care about the most that we struggle with the most. 
And that's because of that whole being addicted to your anxiety. Mm-hmm. It is when you have that emotional importance to it, but you forget once you forgot and now it's out, it's a big problem. Now there's an emotional importance and you get that surge of dopamine. So your body has learned, Hey, by not doing these things, we will get this surge of dopamine. That's actually going to help our body later. And so uh, it's a learned behavior, which is kind of up. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> fucked up. Uh, it's like, <laughs> it serves a purpose and it's so incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially because if your body has issues producing, your body will remember the behaviors that will create these big surges of dopamine, which is usually tied to anxiety or depression. For sure. So how can you, I don't want to use the word fix. I'm having an interesting time with words today and like questioning all of them. (laughs) Anyway, fix, because the person's not broken, right? But what are ways that you can conscientiously either avoid, change, fix this happening? So this is probably not going to come as a surprise to you, but the answer is pleasure. Great. (laughs) There are two reasons why your body produces dopamine is either pain, aka anxiety and depression, or pleasure. That if you want to increase your dopamine without anxiety and sadness, you have to go towards pleasure. That it's just physiologically, that is how you do it. So it sounds like a chicken egg situation. So if anxiety or ADHD or something like that is, or ADHD is creating anxiety or something to that effect, and that has pleasure or even orgasm feel elusive or far away, or like I'm not prioritizing it. Yeah. Which one comes first, but you could also use this as a tool to combat it. So how do you remedy that? So there are multiple ways to do that. And by pleasure, I don't necessarily mean exactly orgasm, although that really is the quickest way because you get this huge surge. But pleasure doesn't have to take the form of orgasm and pleasure doesn't even have to take the form of sexual pleasure. But I will say that sensuality without the intention of sex and orgasm is a really super quick, easy way to boost that dopamine production. And that means doing embodiment practices, taking a moment to touch yourself. Because every time you touch your skin, it creates this chemical reaction process that will lead to more dopamine production. It's hard when you don't feel like being sexy, you don't feel sensual, you don't feel in your body, feel disconnected. But if you can consciously take a moment, even if it's just one moment, to start connecting with yourself from that sensual level, you will start that process of moving towards pleasure versus continuously moving towards pain. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm sure many different ways, but whenever you say the sensual part, then I think of the senses and I think of ways that that brings a person back into their body and present with immediate physical sensation versus kind of ruminating or reeling or spiraling out mentally. And so if you can physically touch and ground yourself into the present moment, then you're less likely to go all far out. But I can tell you that the times whenever I'm in like peak anxiety, I'm just like, 
I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know what's up and down. I've learned some, you know, reaction, I would say, to like if I feel the buildup, then I massage my chest because I feel a lot of intensity or tension in my chest. And then I squeeze my shoulders and I kind of rub my neck and my throat because a lot of times when I feel kind of contracted from the heart space or heart chakra, I notice it right. just kind of creeps all the way up and it kind of takes over. It's almost like a block from there up, like crunch. Everything's just kind of crunchy. And so right. I've learned to, in some ways, partner. I feel this sensation and this is happening in my mind and then so touch myself. So that yeah. feels good to have heard you say portion now, like a, a part of what I experience in myself, but there is definitely room for me to slow things down and even pause what could be triggering the anxiety to touch myself in a different way. Because in a lot of times I feel like I'm just trying to like move the anxiety. Like I'm just trying to move the tension. Right. I'm just trying to get rid of it. And I'm just like, Ugh, you know, and so it would be right. very different to feel all those things ago. You're safe and it's okay to feel in your body. In a lot yes. of ways, these are things that I have taught people and I teach people all the time. And I'm constantly in this, like, how do I walk my talk a little bit more? Because a lot of times I just get really overwhelmed by what is actually happening and the sensations and the experience that I'm actually happening. And those are the times when the tools feel very elusive. I'm going to share my most simple. It's always the activity that I start every single client with every single time. And it's something that I do. And it's now such a habit that it's amazing how this little simple exercise completely shifted my life and my clients' lives. Once you start doing this, when you go to sleep at night, even if you're with a partner laying in the bed, take a moment, one hand over your heart and one hand grabbing, like holding your crotch. <laughs> like right. you need to get in there, like the base of that. And you say you're safe. That's all you have to do. Just Take a second to do that. And what that actually does is because you are holding, I say Yoni, right? But yeah. in case there's some guys that are listening to, genitals. The, to this, yeah, this works as well. But when you are touching your genitals there, they are connected to your security. Mm -hmm. So if you understand like the chakra systems and actually the way it's all tied to different parts of the nervous system. So this is actually a physical science-based recommendation when you touch your genitals and you say that you are safe, that's a very important part of it. You say that you're safe. You are literally sending a signal up to your brain that you're safe and it allows the anxiety to subside. It allows the depression to subside and it allows the dopamine protection to occur because when you are anxious and depressed. Now, one of the things with ADHD, a lot of times the anxiety doesn't show up necessarily in that panic, anxiety that a lot of people experience, it shows up in that constant rumination and never being able to get out of their head and the thinking, the thinking, the thinking. And it's just, in, I don't want to say just anxiety, but that's what it is. It is anxiety. When you do that practice of putting your hand over your heart and your hand over your genitals, it will change the dopamine pathway from creating the stress response hormones and start allowing more dopamine to flow into the other areas. I mean, even just putting my hands on my body like this already feels better. It does. It really does. I, <laughs> I mean, I like the before bed for sure to bring that into going into sleep and then rolling mm -hmm. into the next day. And even just right now, <laughs> talking with I, you. 
And probably if you're driving your car and you're listening to this and you're stopped at a red light, then go for it. I don't recommend you taking both your hands off the wheel for you to do it if you're driving. But if you're on a walk, then I'm sure in your neighborhood, that would be fun to watch someone walking down the street with a hand on the heart and a hand over their genitals going, I'm safe. It's just funny. And it is one of those extremely simple things, but to get into the practice of doing it is the thing that winds up being a little not so simple for people. Right. Um, That's why I recommend at night before you go to bed. Yeah. So when you first start doing it, you'll probably forget, especially mm-hmm. if you have ADHD, you're going to forget. But then, you know, the next day, a week later, two weeks later, you'll have some trigger that, we, oh yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to do the hand over the heart. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I like coaching with my clients and having that consistency. Cause then I check in with them, which creates that pressure to remember to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but once you develop that habit, it's becomes a habit and you can then do it in other times. I haven't done it during a hike, but now I want to do it during a hike because yeah. that sounds amazing. Actually. Like the sun yeah. Yes, please. One of the times I do like to do is if I'm say I'm really stressed and I'm with a bunch of people. And one of my things is, excuse me, I got to go to the bathroom because right. <laughs> if I want to remove myself from the situation, it's always a easy way of doing that. I will often after, you know, after I wipe, you know, <laughs> do that practice <laughs> and put, put my hand over my heart and my hand on my genitals and remind myself that I'm safe. Mm. Yeah, and that really the, the anxiety caused by the people around me, that's theirs. It's a way to come back to yourself. And it's just a super simple practice that once you get used to it, you do it a lot. I do it all the time. I don't even think about it now. Do you have any, and this is not a question that was on my little list here, but I'm very curious. (laughs) Do you have any theories about the types of people that are more likely to have ADHD or to experience anxiety, depression? Not so much depression, but maybe they kind of co-handle it sometimes. They do. Actually, it's interesting. A bunch of my clients, almost all of my clients have ADHD and we didn't actually get into that, but dopamine is required for orgasm. So not a surprise that people have issues orgasming often have ADHD, but anxiety and depression also cause lower levels of dopamine. But a lot of my clients come in and say, oh, I have anxiety or I've been diagnosed with bipolar or diagnosed with whatever whatever, whatever. There's all kinds of diagnosis, right? And then later on, they're like, oh, turns out I have ADHD. The whole time I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) So there is some pretty good evidence that suggests that trauma, and I don't want to say like trauma in this like big elusive, something major crazy event as trauma causes this drop in the dopamine production. And it makes sense because when you understand the stress response cycle, remember, as I said, there's that one pathway that goes towards the pituitary. That is what is required whenever you're stressed. So anytime you're stressed, there's automatically dopamine going towards that pathway to then create the cortisol to get yourself out of the stressful situation. And so birth in general is a very stressful experience, (laughs) mom and baby, (laughs) right? And depending on what the birth is, there could have been an intense level of stress, aka trauma. Stress is basically uncertainty. Anytime there's uncertainty and your body has to take action to combat the uncertainty, there's a whole process of chemical reactions that occur in your body. And there's a whole bunch of energy that is created. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. So it has to leave your body or it stays in your body. 
when it doesn't leave your body and it stays in your body, that's trauma. And so there are different places in which the trauma that stored energy can be stored, but it gets stored in your fascia. Most often it gets stored in your fascia and your fascia covers every single organ in your body and your muscles and it's everywhere throughout your body. So trauma can be stored literally anywhere throughout your body. So if you think about a baby going through a traumatic birth, then there's going to be stored energy in there. And then there's going to be now a mismatch of the dopamine production because of all of the dopamine that had to go towards that stress response cycle. And then if you never get it back up to balance, you're just always going to have a low dopamine production. Mm. Thank you for that explanation. I think that the term things are imbalanced, whether it's hormones are imbalanced or neurochemicals are imbalanced. It seems kind of elusive. You know, what do I do to get that thing back in balance? Right. And I use the word balance right now because that's the terminology, but really it should be flow because there's always going to be a fluctuation. Mm -hmm. That's life. There's moments of rest and digest and there's moments of stress and you're supposed to flow between the two. The problem is most people are not flowing between rest and digest and stress. They're just hanging out over in the stress response. Yeah. And so it is pleasurable activities that will bring that flow back into practice. So if for people who are just like pleasurable all the time, do they just need a little more stress in their lives? No. Uh, I don't know anyone that's truly like that. No, neither have I. So I'm going to ask you a question now that is the most asked question that I have gotten, that I have received in the DMs on Instagram or in response to emails when we have asked what subject, you know, sometimes I put the little question box on my stories and Instagram and it's what questions, what do you want me to bring to the show? So this is it deduced in a nutshell for those who experience ADHD in the bedroom, you know, cause you were saying it can be focused to cleaning the house or it can be focused to all these different places for those that experience it in the bedroom and have a hard time focusing on pleasure. What advice or guidance would you give them? To start really committing to an embodiment practice. You have to get into your body. You have to get into the pleasurable sensations of your body. It is the way to create dopamine other than anxiety and ruminating and thinking in your head, (laughs) which is not conducive to having an orgasm. So you need a balance of dopamine and serotonin. And well, serotonin is technically the antithesis to dopamine and orgasm. If there's too much serotonin in your body, you will have difficulty orgasming, which is why a lot of people who are on SSRIs Mm -hmm. can't orgasm because you need dopamine. And when there's too much serotonin in your body, doesn't create dopamine. So for example, I have quite a few clients who have diagnosis of depression, and then they get on these serotonin medications and it makes orgasm really, really difficult at that point. So the embodiment practices, and by embodiment, I mean getting in your body. When you are stressed, you're, and depending on how much stress you live in, which most of us live in stress all the time. Oh yeah, even when it's nice and calm here, I find ways to fuck it up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what can I stress um, your, about Your body, your brain is basically an energy resource management system, mm-hmm. and it will start turning down sensory input from different areas of your body, the more you're in stress. 
And one of the areas of your body that is not necessary for daily function is your reproductive areas, right? That has a specific directive, right? (laughs) You're not supposed to be thinking about having sex when you're getting chased by a lion. I think we can all, you know, agree with that. You're also not supposed to be worried about digesting your food while you're getting chased by a lion. So most of the time when people are under stress, it usually shows up either in the bedroom or through digestion. And that's because those two systems get turned down when you're stressed. And so depending on your body and will depend on which of those systems, sometimes the combination of both, or it will be really heavily towards the reproductive or really heavily towards the digestion. So it is about reducing that stress, which we all know we're supposed to reduce stress. And the way you do that is by bringing in pleasurable activities. And the easiest way is to get into those activities that start turning on those reduced sensory inputs. And I'm a huge proponent after the yoni hand over your heart and hand over your yoni. The next practice that I always recommend for people is yoni dearmoring. And yoni dearmoring is that process of the stress starts turning down the sensations in all of your reproductive organs. And that includes your vagina, your vulva, your cervix, all of it starts, the sensory input starts going slowly, slowly going down to the point where sometimes people are numb, but it doesn't happen instantaneously. So people have no idea that they have reduced sensation because they can still usually feel something. It's just not to the extent that they used to have. And that is a lot of my clients that I can't have an orgasm like I used to. It's harder for me to have an orgasm like I used to. I can't get out of my head and it just, you know, or like I have an orgasm, but it's just, eh. <laughs> and it's not the big explosive like I had when I was younger. And that has to do with the stress turning down that sensory input. And so that's called armoring, right? So your body is armoring itself against the stress of your life. And so yoni de-armoring is practice of actually physically taking the stress and trauma, aka the stored energy in your fascia, like moving it out of your fascia. How do you and do that it? Is, so you use it with a, I like using a cervical wand, okay. which is basically a big glass dildo. <laughs> right, right. Our listeners um, and that, are very familiar with Yoni Pleasure Palace. So I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with the brand, but we talk about their products and the crystal wands, which I thought that might right. be what you were going to say, but I didn't know if there was something that it was just your hand is there and then there's some like magic you can say. Yeah. But probably so, that too. Yeah. So it's a combination of massage using your hands and also using a wand because it's important to actually massage like your vulva and the outside parts as well. When you go to get a massage from a massage place, they're not massaging that, but there are muscles there. Your pelvic floor has got tons of muscles and they are used every single day and they are not massaged out. Like our shoulders get massaged out or our back gets our legs all of those things, all the parts of our body that are accessible from the outside usually get massaged. And even yoga practices, one of the reasons those are really good is they also help getting you in positions to massage out your different muscles, but there aren't really good ways of massaging out the pelvic floor muscles. And so that's why using the wands in particular is a really important practice. That is to help with the physical thing. And when you release that stored energy, it starts turning back on the nerves. 
right? And so once you start having that nerve sensation coming back online, you can start experiencing more pleasure. And I have some clients who come in pain and all kinds of different issues (laughs) that are going on. And once they start the Yoni Dierman practice, they're usually just going in specifically to like, okay, I got to work this out. And then it slowly turns into the sensual practice because when you've got that anxious mind and you're like, oh, I just got to fix this, you kind of approach things differently. But as you start opening up and start allowing your body to feel the sensation, you start going, oh, that actually feels good. And then you start slowing down more. And so I do have a course on Yoni Dharmi that explains all of this stuff, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, I recommend it, whether through me or through anybody else. It's, yeah. it's a huge practice. It yeah. is fascinating. And another reminder, which I was just writing in one of my journals about this earlier today, just about how sex can be or sexual energy or practices that involve any element of sex. There's so many of them and they're so varied and they can do so many different things. So many people that I encounter think sex is one kind of thing. It's used in one kind of way. And as I continue deepening practices and relationship with myself and definitely practices in my relationship with my husband, I'm blown. I'm steadily blown away by what's available when it's not all about me performing for you or you performing for me or us trying to get sex checked off the list of things that we need to do or even it's just about pleasure just a reconnection there's so much healing that's available there and especially with some of the things that I was mentioning at the very beginning of our chat today I have been showing up more and more very recently to sex from a very messy place like I am just raw and uncomfortable physically and emotionally uncomfortable and slightly distracted, slight like on the edge of disassociated at times, but not quite fully there. And my very steady, predictable, straightforward, silly, playful husband is like, well, I don't know what kind of creature you are, but I'm here and I'm holding (laughs) you slash I'm standing next to you, patting your back and you're doing great, I think. But sex has been a tool that we've leveraged in order to actually be able to feel each other and to see each other and for him to truly understand who I am and where I'm coming from and what's deeper underneath how some of my reactivity to the world just plays out in our day to day. So sex, even with him to have it slow down and to focus on, I'm not just going to go in and I'm already distracted with all of the things that I'm thinking about that I need to do other than this. It's more like I'm showing up to this just with the messiness of it all, allowing that to take some space, not over the space. That's not what it becomes about, but it's more like an ability to make love through it so that there's a deeper connection. Yeah. And I'm thinking, especially in hearing what you were just sharing, and I know that I've been slightly avoiding it, is to spend this time with myself, which I know the importance and I have experienced the importance. It's done so much so many wonderful things for me in my own personal journey. And it is the thing that I resist and resist and resist. And it's so interesting, the things that for me, and I'm sure other people too, the things that I resist are, it's the medicine that I need the very most. And sometimes I'm even more willing because I have a partner that's like, hey, let's show up. He'll hold me accountable. Mm -hmm. But I don't really have anyone to hold me accountable 
outside of myself or maybe some friends right. at times to do the practice for myself that then directly translates to so many other areas of my life. So thank you for the beautiful practice and the reminder. And I would also encourage anyone who's like, whoa, Yoni de-armoring, what is up with that? I could use that to definitely reach out to Wendy, to reach out to you and to inquire further because it isn't something that I teach. It's something that I mention, and I usually go, Mm -hmm. and here's the plethora of people that are teaching (laughs) on this subject. I consider myself very much a bridge. You know, I'm meeting everybody where they're at, and I'm like, there's so much more out there. And as soon as they touch the more, and they're like, I want to know more about that. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, look, here, welcome. Here's Wendy. (laughs) You know, they want to get into kink, and they want to get into healing through that, which has been really profound for me as well. And I'm like, oh, here's this person over there. So... Yeah, I'm definitely curious to learn more, hear more, and develop my own practice in that regard. So, yeah, thank yeah. you for that. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned kink because probably my most popular course that I have is actually BDSM and ADHD and how kink and BDSM can really actually help people with ADHD because of the ways that it increases the dopamine production because it's pleasure. The pleasure comes in so many different forms. And I'm a big fan of BDSM myself personally, (laughs) but it can come in different ways. It can come in ecstatic dance. It can come in Tantra. It can come in so many different ways, anywhere you can find pleasure and find someone that can help you learn how to get into your body in the way that feels the most authentic to you and the safest to you. And that's a huge part of it is the safety. Mm. Remember going back to that first exercise, you know, putting your hand over your heart and hand over your crotch and saying that you are safe is a foundational piece in reducing your anxiety and your depression. So that way you can increase dopamine through pleasure. Right. It's Absolutely. all founded in safety. Wow. Yeah. Profound folks. <laughs> I bet y'all didn't know that, or maybe you did, if I had to guess, you <laughs> did, and you could, like me, use the reminder uh, probably a couple times every day. <laughs> uh, so, yep. Wendy, I'm sure so many people who are listening to this feel very seen, very felt, heard, understood in a scientific kind of way with your knowledge around the biochemistry, neurochemistry in that regard. And then also with regards to your language using things like yoni and embodiment and stuff like that, that feels a little bit lighter, a little bit softer. Yeah. And when I hear it, I feel permission in it too and realness in it as well. And so if anyone listening has those feelings, feel, you know, feel seen, felt understood, all of that, then my recommendation to you listeners is what is, actually, I'll just have this question. I'll pose this question. What was something that Wendy spoke about, maybe a practice or something, maybe it was the hand of the heart, hand of the genitals right before bed. So partnering that with something that you're already going to do, which is go to bed. If you maybe experience ADHD or anxiety or something like that, and you might forget, then maybe you can put a note by your bed where you put your water glass or whatever you put next to your bed that you know, next to the lamp that you turn off. The way you can see safety practice or put your hand on your heart, put your hand over your insert, whatever you'd like to lovingly call 
your genitals Mm -hmm. to remind you to do that. So what came from this? What are your golden nuggets from this episode that you can implement into your life in a way that feels really good and in flow? Not like one other thing that you have to pencil in so that you can try it and say that you also tried that too. So Mm -hmm. I want you to be kind to yourself. I'm also speaking to myself as I say this. Be gracious with yourself and compassionate with yourself and take one or two of the practices and just give them a try and see how it feels. So what possible additions would you like to recommend or leave the listeners with? I love that you brought in compassion, especially my ADHD ears (laughs) out there. If you guys know the term RSD, which is rejection sensitivity dysphoria, it's real and it's a big thing. And it's learning how to bring compassion into your daily life is going to be a huge part of creating that safety in your body. So you can experience less anxiety and depression that usually goes hand in hand with your ADHD. Sweet. Wendy, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to share your wisdom, your knowledge, and your practices with our listeners. I truly appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you loved it, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you extra, extra loved it, make sure to leave a five-star review. I'll see y'all next week.